A lot of things have gone on uh, in this past week, and um, there are some things that have been incredibly joyful, and uh, other things that have been hard, and uh, that have created a lot of suffering. Uh, one of the things that I've committed to this year for my own leadership growth uh, is to go to a counselor once a month, uh, whether I need it or not. So far, I've discovered I need it every time I go. Uh, I suspect that'll be the case uh, each time hereafter. But the other day, the counselor was sharing something that was, it was really helpful for me. I don't know if it'll be helpful for you or not, but I'm kind of an all-in person, and so if things are going well, I feel like they ought to all be going well, and if things are going bad, it just feels like everything's going bad. And, and the thing this counselor says, you know, we have to be careful uh, to have a, a nuance in the way we, we see this. He said, if, if you think that things have to be always good and peaceful and okay, Uh, then that kind of creates a chaos inside because it's not going to be like that. And then if you think everything's always going to be hard and suffering and bad and terrible, then that's chaos inside. And there's there's a tension between the two. There's there's, uh, good and peaceful things going on simultaneous to things that can be hard uh, and suffering at the same time. And I I think that's a fair uh, tension uh, and I do think when we can live in that, uh, there's a deeper peace that comes and actually a deeper joy uh, in the midst of it. Well, one of the things that was incredibly difficult this week is the Nashville uh, shootings of the three nine-year-old children and then the three adults uh, in that private Christian school. And I'd like for us this morning uh, to pray for them. Uh, but to do it in a way that's uh, different than, than what we would do as a norm. A friend of ours gave us a book called Every Holy Moment, and it's a book of liturgical prayers. Uh, the word liturgy means form, and sometimes we think of liturgy as just a, uh, a traditional church, and they have a liturgy. The reality is we have a liturgy here. It's just a more informal liturgy. It's just a form in the way that you do worship. And then there's a liturgical prayers uh, in this book. Uh, just it's It's just a Uh, we found it really meaningful so far uh, in looking at it. So I thought this morning uh, that we would do a liturgical prayer, and it's titled Grieving a National Tragedy. Uh, And I just landed this, uh, the one I wanted to do last night. So I've asked Lorraine, who leads our ladies, uh, to do this with me. Uh, And in the future, maybe we'll do more of these liturgical uh, prayers and readings where the leader would say something and then everyone else responds uh, to it, and I, and I, I think when I think sometimes other people can give voice to things uh, that we may not be able to give as much uh, voice to, or we may not know how to give voice to it. Just like songs, uh, people write songs, and it it gives us voice to say things to God that on our own uh, we might not uh, be able to or come up with. So, if you would, I want us to pray together. And again, Lorraine and I'll do this as uh, as in responding back to one another in this prayer. Um, And then I'll leave a little space at the end uh, for however God would have you to pray uh, for these families and and really any other kind of things that that crosses your mind this morning. All right, so let's pray together. Oh God, who gathers what has been scattered. Shelter us now in the shadow of your wings. Oh Christ, who binds our wounds. Be our great healer. Oh Spirit, who enters our every grief. Intercede now for this hurting people in this broken land. Be present in the midst of this far-reaching pain. Oh, Lord, for we're reeling again at news of another loss of life that touches us all. 
news of flourishing diminished, of individuals harmed, of pain imposed, not only upon victims and their families who bear now the immediate brunt of it, but also upon our nation. For we're connected as a people, and this hurt, this grief touches us all. Engage our imaginations and move our hearts to compassion. Uh, O Lord, that we would interact with these casualties, not as news stories or statistics, but as our own brothers and sisters, flesh and blood, divine image bearers, irreplaceable individuals whose losses will leave gaping holes in homes, friendships, workplaces, churches, schools, organizations, and neighborhoods. Be merciful to those now wounded. Be present with those now bereaved. You do not run from our brokenness, O God. You move ever toward those in need. Your heart is always inclined toward those who suffer. Now let your mercies be active through the hands, the words, and the compassionate care of those who willingly enter this sadness to console and serve. Be with all those who move toward this need. The helpers, the counselors, the first responders, those who offer aid and protection, the pastors and intercessors, those who meet immediate practical needs, those who seek to heal physical wounds, and those who come after to carry on the long, hard work of rebuilding families and hearts and lives and community. Grant each of them wisdom, courage, vision, sympathy, and strength to serve effectively in their various capacities. Even in the shadow of such tragedy, let us not lose hope. Give us eyes to see the rapid movements of mercy rushing to fill these newly wounded spaces. Let us see in this the echoes of your own mercy and compassion, a foretaste of your kingdom coming to earth. And move our own hearts also, equipping us to intercede, to act, and to respond however we are able. Move, O Holy Spirit, in the midst and in the aftermath of this tragedy, in the wake of our wounding, in the shock, and in the sorrow. Arrest the hearts and stay the hands of any who even now might be plotting further evil and violence against others, O Christ. Turn them from hatred. Turn their hearts to you. You once brooded over the formless chaos of ancient waters and brought forth the order and flourishing of creation. Do so again, O Spirit of God. From the chaos of this tragedy, call forth new life and order and flourishing. Take even what our adversary might have meant for evil and from it bring forth eternal good. You alone have strength to carry this people. Carry us now, O Lord. You alone have wisdom and power to heal the wounds of a nation. Heal us, O Lord. You alone have compassion enough to enter our widespread grief and turn it to hope. Be merciful, O Christ. Amen.
Amen. Thank you for that. Um, one of the dads uh, of the one of the nine year olds, uh, he he just said, you know, our our hope uh, is in the resurrection, uh, and that our daughter uh, will be resurrected, and is resurrected, and that one day we'll join her, uh, and only in Christ uh, is that a, a hope. Uh, and a possibility, and I love that God gave that dad the strength to even carry that thought uh, in the midst of uh, just unbelievable grief, uh, really. If you'll turn your Bibles in this week that we think about, and, and some call it Holy Week, and we call it Easter Week, whatever whatever it is, name you want to give it, <clears throat> um, we have a, a an, an aim and a, and a focus that we have towards um, the the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus as we uh, move through uh, these days and, and kind of reflect back in, a, in hopefully a, a deep way on what Christ uh, did for us. And we want to begin in uh, this, this week, think about John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11 uh, in the scriptures and uh, what God would have to say to us on this week. And, and this chapter is the... Uh, uh, where people would begin to say, "This is this is kind of where this week starts," um, and we tend to think of Palm Sunday uh, when Jesus entered in uh, to Jerusalem, and people are, uh, you know, they've got the palm branches, and he's coming in on a colt, and uh, and so forth. We tend to think that's kind of the start of the week, uh, but I, th- I think John twelve one through eleven gives us that start, which is actually in a different spot. Uh, and it's six days prior to, uh, to Passover. Before we move into John 12 and our big ideas, we think about John 12 today uh, on this week uh, of, of Easter. Um, we want to have context. And, and when we jump into the middle of something like this, it's important uh, that we really kind of lock around what's happening. Uh, and Jesus has just spent some time in the wilderness uh, in a place called Ephraim. Uh, and he's in that, that space with his disciples uh, before he enters into this space in John 12. And it, it makes me wonder, I, I, we don't get told exactly what he's doing with his disciples there, but we know that Jesus had a rhythm and a habit of being alone with his father. He enjoyed time alone with his father, and, and he would go to secluded places to be alone with him. We also know at the outset of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, and, uh, and he was fasting in those days. The end of that period of time, uh, he was tempted uh, by, the, by Satan, uh, and he responded to each of those temptations with, uh, with truth from God's word. Uh, and so we just know the wilderness is a place. It can be a hard place, uh, and it can be a transformative place in time alone uh, with God. Uh, so here he was with his disciples, and uh, I would make at least an assumption, I don't know, fair or unfair, uh, that he also had some good space, space with his father as he was about to move into what would be an incredibly difficult uh, week for him. Uh, and so that brings us to John chapter 12. Uh, and the idea I'd like us to think about, I, I want to ask a question 
Uh, and I, I hope we're game to be challenged this morning at a heart level. And when I ask this question, uh, I'm, I don't want you to think about your spouse. I don't want you to think about your friends. I don't want you to think about your kids. I don't want you to think about your life group. Uh, I don't want you to think about those you work with. Uh, and now that I said all that, that's what you'll think. Uh, but what I want you to think on today, and you can think about that, but let's not miss ourselves first. And the, the question I want to ask in light of the scripture today is, are you all in on Jesus? Question mark. All in on Jesus. Are you all in on him? And we'll find as we move through this passage of scripture why I would ask that question in light of uh, what's happening here. One way that we can know that we're all in on Jesus, just one way to test it, uh, is by the way of extravagant giving. In verses one through three, I want to anchor ourselves to the scripture. I'll spend the bulk of our time in verses one through three, uh, and I wanted to hang out on this piece, and then we'll look at some uh, other responses as well uh, to Jesus. But in this one, uh, when we talk, talk about all out, all in on him, uh, extravagant giving is what uh, comes to mind uh, when we look at these verses. Verse one, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover. Uh, and I just want to pause right there. This is six days before the Passover. There is some uh, debate that goes on as to uh, exactly what happened, um, what, what the days are uh, regarding Passover. Uh, and we don't have time uh, for that in our, our time here. Uh, but just know that this is six days before the Passover. We're just going to go with the plain reading of it, that it's six days before the Passover. Now, we have a number, a wide variety of people here and online. They're present and online. Uh, and so I want to make sure we don't just pass over things like the Passover uh, and act like everyone knows what that is. So by way of reminder for some and, and by way of new for others, uh, when we're talking about the Passover, uh, we go back to Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And, and at that point in time, we uh, are confronted with the reality that the Israelites had been enslaved to Egypt for 400 years. Uh, and now God is bringing them to a place of deliverance. And, and he's going to work through one man, Moses, to deliver the people from being in slavery. He goes to the Pharaoh, Moses does, and, and as he talks to him, the Pharaoh has a continued hardened heart and all the things that God's doing. And then it comes down to the point where uh, there'll be the last plague that'll happen. And on that day, this is what God told Moses to instruct the people to do. He said, each household is to take an unblemished lamb, one year old, slaughter the lamb, and with the blood of that lamb... Put the blood on the doorposts of your home and on the lintel is what it's referred to. Just the, the, the door frame. Just think of the door frame. And the blood of that one-year-old unblemished lamb uh, is to be placed on that door frame. And for every household that has their home with that blood on the door frame, then the death angel will pass over that home and that home will be spared uh, what will happen to the homes that do not have that blood on the door frame. The firstborn of every family and the firstborn of every animal would be struck down that night if there was not that covering of blood over the home. 
after that occurred, God told Moses, he said, this is an ordinance and a, something that you'll celebrate uh, and remember uh, every year. So this is a permanent ordinance to remember what happened on that Passover night. Uh, and that's what's about to happen. This will be the third Passover mentioned in the Gospel of John that Jesus is a part of. Uh, and then they will, uh, they will, uh, there will be new meaning inserted uh, into it, which we'll uh, actually celebrate this Thursday night uh, here. Uh, so that's, that's Passover. And, it, and we know that the Old Testament is always pointing us to the new. So when we read the old, it's a, it's a foreshadowing, it's a shadow of the substance that's to come. Uh, and the Passover would be a significant uh, foreshadowing uh, and shadow of what will come and what the substance will be uh, in Jesus. So before six days before the Passover, they came to Bethany, uh, and at Bethany is about two miles outside of Jerusalem on the eastern slope that's the Mount of Olives. So when we read in the scripture about the Mount of Olives, you can kind of go up the Mount of Olives and then two miles from it, uh, and that would be the town uh, of Bethany. And here we're introduced to who's going to be at this dinner hanging out with Jesus. And Lazarus, uh, this is who Jesus had raised from the dead. So we find in John 11 that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Bethany is the town uh, where he's from, uh, and this is where they are. Verse 2, so they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. Martha, we find in Luke chapter 10, uh, that she was, uh, in that particular moment we see her, she also serves Jesus. So we can kind of surmise from what we learn about Martha that she has a servant heart. Uh, she seems to have a hospitality kind of uh, gift about her in the things, the little that we know of her. Uh, and here she is, and they're about to have supper. This would have been late uh, afternoon uh, or early into the evening. Uh, and one thing that people in the Middle East do really well is hospitality and hanging, around, hanging out around a dinner table. And we see Jesus often at a table uh, with different people. So here we see uh, Martha serving. Lazarus was one of those that was reclining at the table with him. Now God had, or Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Here he is. Now they're having dinner together. Martha uh, is serving uh, them that dinner. Now, I think it's kind of cool the way they did this in that day. Uh, the way they would gather around a table, it was lower to the ground. And it seems by the number of people that here were here, this might be more of a banquet than just a regular dinner, or it could have been a, a dinner, just kind of however, we're not totally sure. But there's a good crowd that has come for the dinner. They're around the table, and the way they would do it, and, and maybe you've seen paintings or pictures, but uh, they would lean on one elbow on the ground, and then their face would be kind of right there at the table. I think that's kind of cool. I like to eat. I love the idea of my face just being right there at the table, uh, you know, kind of at ground level. And then your feet are kind of laid out this way for obvious reasons away from uh, the table. Uh, and they recline there and Lazarus is doing that. Uh, and they're about to have this time around the table together. I think that's a good pause for us to just think about uh, the table. And there's, there's something about a meal uh, and being around the table uh, that gives an opportunity for relationship building, uh, for conversation to deepen, 
to gather on a table with friends, to do the same with family. Many of our life groups do that. You'll gather for a meal together before you spend your time in the Word. Uh, and there's just rich things that go on uh, at the table. Uh, and, and this is a space where relationships can be built. One of the things that Jesus did when we read through the Gospels is he spent time with a wide variety of people at his table. We know in Matthew and Mark who also record this story, which that's the beauty of the four Gospels. So oftentimes there's stories told in the different Gospels and you get a fuller perspective that way. But we know the house where they're staying is a man named Simon the leper. Uh, and lepers were a marginalized people. And we know from watching Jesus again and again in the scriptures that he loved the marginalized person. Uh, and he invited them to his table, and they were invited, uh, he was invited to theirs. There was a, an ease for them to be at the table together. Uh, and then we know he's hanging out with friends, with Mary and Martha, Lazarus in this, in this story, and his disciples. And so he, he spent that time at the table. Jesus was accused of hanging out with gluttons and with drunkards and with tax collectors, which was not a positive, and sinners. And, and they weren't complimenting him for that. Jesus didn't seem to mind who he hung out with. It didn't seem to uh, bother him that he was getting called certain things or his reputation might be harmed. He just gathered around the table and hung out. I, I think a lot in our day is being missed by the table time being missed. That we're, we're so busy uh, that there's not time to linger at the table. Uh, and what a challenge for our own hearts uh, to, with our families um, to have that kind of, that kind of time. Uh, and Jesus set the pace well for us on, on what it would look like to, to hang out at a table, whether that's a restaurant table or a home table, but that we're, we're hanging out at the table. Well, in verse 3, we're introduced to Mary, uh, in this particular part of the scripture. And she then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Uh, now, in the, in the Gospels, when you read them, you'll read Mary's name multiple times. It's a common name. Uh, and we read about Mary Magdalene in the Gospels. We read about Mary, the mother of Jesus in the Gospels. And we read about Mary, who, whose sister is Martha and whose brother is Lazarus. So this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's not Mary Magdalene. This is the Mary that is her brother, Lazarus, had been raised uh, from the dead. And, and so Mary here, she's, she's in this story and she's around the table, but she brings a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. Now, I didn't know what nard is. I've, I've done this before or, or read and studied this before, and I knew what nard was a while back, and then I forgot until I studied again. Uh, but it's a plant that is in northern India, uh, and it would have to be imported uh, from northern India to wherever it would be utilized, uh, which would contribute to the costliness uh, of it. it. It had a rich rose red color to it and a sweet uh, kind of scent uh, to it uh, when it was uh, made into a fragrant kind of, 
of oil. Uh, and Mary had a pound of it. Uh, and we'll learn in a bit uh, that a pound of this particular oil was equivalent to one year's wages of an average worker of that day. So just take the average worker today, a year's worth of salary, and it goes to this one pound of this fragrant oil. It's, a, it's costly uh, what she has. And then she takes it and she anoints the feet of Jesus. Uh, the word anoint means to set apart. And so she's doing this to, uh, to set apart. It's sacred, uh, and she's anointing the feet of Jesus. Now, in Matthew and Mark, they say that she anointed the head of Jesus. In this particular part, in John, she anointed his feet. Most believe there was enough of that fragrant oil to have done both his head and his feet. And when we learn a little bit later the significance of what she did, then we know probably more why uh, she did the head and the feet. But here we're told that she wiped, uh, that she put it uh, on the feet of Jesus, and then she wiped his feet with her hair. Now, in that culture, if a woman had her hair unbound, that was the sign of an immoral woman. That was a cultural thing in that day. Uh, and again, we see someone that has uh, such a love for Jesus, she's not concerned about her social uh, reputation by what she's about to do. Now, a number of you have long hair, uh, and I'm just going to guess, but my guess is most of you have never taken your hair and wiped the feet of someone else. And yet Mary, in this extravagant act of devotion, she's already uh, giving him her best of what she had with the, with the perfume. Now she's down here, and she's at his feet, and with her hair, she is sitting there wiping off uh, that oil uh, on Jesus' feet. Now, it was a hospitality move in that day to wash the feet of guests, but normally it was with a towel, and normally it was by the servants who were the most menial in the household. This was one of the most menial tasks someone could do, would be to wash the feet uh, of, of someone. And, and here's Mary uh, just laying aside all dignity uh, out of a love uh, for Jesus. And she anoints his feet with that oil, wipes them with her hair, uh, and then the house was filled with the fragrance uh, of that perfume. Uh, just to backtrack on Mary a little bit. So here she is. She's wiping the feet of Jesus. She's mentioned two other times in the Gospels. And the other two times she's mentioned in regard to feet also. So each time we see Mary, we see something about feet. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42... Uh, Luke uh, says this, uh, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, verse 38, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. So this is not his first encounter uh, with uh, Mary and Martha. Martha welcomed him in. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. So they're traveling, they're coming by, uh, Jesus is, and then come in, Martha's hard at work getting everything done, and then Mary just sits at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. 
John 12 is not her first encounter at the feet of Jesus. And she's just being with him. Before we'll ever be extravagant givers, we want to be extravagant listeners at the feet of Jesus. Before we'll ever give extravagantly, we give ourselves first to him extravagantly. And she was just enjoying being at Jesus' feet. Now Martha wasn't so fired up about this whole plan that her sister had. She was distracted with all her preparations. She came up to him and said, Hey Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do all the serving alone? And could you go ahead and tell her to help me? What did Jesus say? He answered and he said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. In a given day, the only one thing necessary is to sit at the feet of Jesus. That's the one thing. And she sat at his feet. It's what Jesus would say to his disciples one more time to reiterate it on the night before we go to the cross. He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. Remain in me. Find your rest in me, Jesus says. And Mary had that figured out. She just sat at his feet. In John eleven thirty two, 32, Lazarus had died. When Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She sat at his feet and just listened to him. And then when she was in one of her most dire grieving moments, she fell at his feet in humility and worship of him and asking him in her, in her deepest need. And then we find her in John 12, wiping the feet of Jesus. She had been encountered by the lavishness of Jesus for her. And out of gratitude, the only thing she could do is lavishly give back to him. She loved him. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul says it really well. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. She had experienced in the presence of Jesus the grace of Jesus. And now the only thing she could do is extravagantly give back to him. See, this is a response to who he is. And, and that says that, that the amount of perfume that she used, that it, it filled up the whole house. Uh, the other night, Lisa was cooking uh, uh, fajita meat, and she did it in a crock pot. I don't know if people do crock pots anymore or not. I think you do air fryers to make it quicker. But there is something really cool about meat being prepared the night before 
slowly cooking overnight. And then when I awakened, our house was filled with the aroma of that meat. And as I was studying, I was smelling that meat. And I was thinking, I should be eating that meat. And so I made my way to the kitchen, and I did. And it was for our son, but I thought, surely this will be okay. And then I learned later she had made some for us. But that fragrant aroma. And it's the same thing that Paul says to the Corinthians again when he said, but thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. You see, in the Old Testament, when people make sacrifices to God, that it was a pleasing and sweet aroma to him. Uh, God loves that sweet aroma of sacrifice to him. It rises up to him. It's a sweet aroma. And we do this in verse 15. We're a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are uh, perish, being saved and among those who are perishing. So you and I, for those who know Jesus and are at the feet of Jesus, wherever we go, we're an aroma to someone. Now, you can do a lot with that, but just stick with me. Uh, We're an aroma to someone of either life, if we have Jesus in us, or of death, if we don't. To the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because one fragrance might smell awesome to you and it might smell horrible to you. And you're thinking, I could sit in this all day long. And you're thinking, when are we leaving? That's about to wear me out. And that's what it's like when a Christian enters into a room that has been sitting at the feet of Jesus. We are an aroma and it creates a response to someone that is In life with us in Christ, it's a life-giving aroma. To someone that doesn't know Christ, not so much. But for Mary, she had extravagantly given her best to Jesus. In Matthew, it says that when the gospel is preached to the whole world, what this woman did will be remembered. She just had a devotion to her Lord and her Savior. And she's been remembered ever since. Can I ask you a personal question that you answer for yourself? We're talking about being all in on Jesus. Mary, I think, is a beautiful example of what that looks like. What is the most extravagant gift that you've ever given Jesus? You can think time, you can think treasures, you can think talents, you can think whatever, but what, what is the most extravagant gift that you've ever given him? He really does think that you're worth and that I'm worth giving his entire life for. He's extravagantly poured his grace out on us. What do we think is worth giving him? in all that we have. Well, I wanted to hang out on the the good piece of the story, but there's some other things to challenge our hearts, um, and then it wraps itself back around to good. But but can we just kind of go there briefly and and look at how how would we know? One, One way we ask is, are we extravagant givers of ourselves for Jesus? And then the second thing we might ask in light of Judas Iscariot, are we selfishly withholding from him. 
is, is if we have hearts that are selfishly withholding from God, that might be an indicator that we're not all in on him. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, uh, said, and so here we have at the table someone that was about to betray him. Uh, how often have we invited people to our table uh, that we know they're going to betray us? And yet Jesus invited him to his table more than once. Uh, and Judas, one of the disciples, hanging out, knew he betray him. Verse 5, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, oftentimes people will put that question on us when we're spending on something and say, you know what, you could have given that to the poor. And so here's Judas saying, hey, that was expensive, what just happened there. We, we could have used that money. He's the treasurer of the disciples. He handled all the money. And he's kind of like, hey, we could have given that to the poor. Now, we can ding Judas here, and we, we should. But in Matthew and Mark, we also see that the other disciples, when they saw what this woman did, what Mary did, they were indignant that she did this. They said she was wasteful, and they scolded her. Our preaching team was meeting the other day, so all the different guys that, that preach, we meet each week as a norm and kind of talk about what we're going to do. And We were talking about this. Said, Man, aren't, aren't we just so often like Judas and the disciples? We are so quick to criticize someone else and what they do. We're so quick to criticize other brothers and sisters in Christ and the way they're living out their faith and the way they might give towards God himself. Or we can often be so quick to complain. And here's the ones that are closest into Jesus and then they're just saying what she did is wasteful. Not considering maybe that what is wasteful to some is actually beautiful to Jesus. In Philippians 2, we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining or grumbling, so that you may prove yourselves to be innocent and blameless, children of God above reproach so that you may appear as lights in the world. When we're complaining and criticizing, our light's not burning very bright in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Mary's giving her all, and then she's being criticized by those closest in. Verse 6, though, we see a little bit more about Judas. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So we're seeing more into the character of Judas. He was already a thief before he was a betrayer. Uh, and he wasn't concerned about the poor, as oftentimes people are not. Uh, they just have a question they want to try to stump and burn the Christian with. Uh, and, and so here he is. He actually wants the money uh, for himself, and then he would fully intend uh, to steal it. Now, what is apparent here in these first six verses is it always comes back to the motivation of the heart. And we know Mary's heart is being motivated by the grace of Jesus towards her. And now she's expressing that back to him. 
Judas's heart is a corrupt heart, not motivated by being uh, with Jesus, but rather, how can he take advantage of it? In Luke chapter twelve, uh, yeah, Luke chapter twelve, verse fifteen, uh, the scripture says, and Jesus says uh, to be careful um, to uh, not be greedy, to have a covetous heart, uh, and to beware of that. And I think that's the heart that Judas has, at least at a, at a minimum, there's greed in there. Uh, in Matthew 6, though, we're told that, that where your treasure is, that's, that's where your heart is. So a question we can ask is, what do we treasure? And whatever we treasure the most, that's an indicator of where our heart is. You can't really hide from that. Whatever I treasure and value, that tells me the shape of my heart. And really, it tells me whether I'm in or not uh, in following after Jesus. In Ananias and Sapphira, their story in the book of Acts, uh, things are kind of going wild with the gospel. People are repenting, coming to Jesus. uh, And as they do that, people are giving stuff away. They're all in. They're selling stuff, giving the money so the poor can be taken care of. Uh, And as they're doing it, Ananias and Sapphira, they act like they're doing that. And then they get confronted and they said they had sold some land and they gave the money, but they didn't. They were told one at a time. And then both of them get struck dead. Why? Because they lied to the Holy Spirit. They were actually trying to fake being generous givers to what God was doing. Now, I I think this is a little bit of a challenge here. Hypocrisy is something that we're often accused of in the church. We're we're told we're judgmental. We're told we're hypocrites. Uh, There's a number of other other things that we're told, but those are two for our purposes in this passage. Years ago, I would just agree with that when people said it. If they said the church is a bunch of hypocrites, then I just kind of said, yeah, you're right, and I'm, I'm sorry about that. But then one day I stopped and actually thought about what I was saying. I thought, if I say that, then I'm saying all my friends are hypocrites. And I don't believe that. If I say that, I'm saying Thane's a hypocrite. I'm saying Jack's a hypocrite. I'm saying Brett's a hypocrite. Just go around the room. I'm just saying you're a hypocrite when I say that. There's a difference, though, in a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone that is on purpose faking, trying to be something that they're not. That's different than I battle, I struggle, I fall, I get knocked down, I admit it. (laughs) I know I do. Uh, That's different than uh, I'm curious, I don't really get this whole thing, I show up at the church, I'm not all in. I'm honest about it. I'm just trying to figure it out. Uh, That's not a hypocrite. That's honest. We love it when people are honest. We want people here that are curious. Um, It is uh, the guy that says, you know what? Uh, I don't really like the church. I'm not really for the Jesus thing, but I really like this girl who goes to the church, and it looks like that's important to her. So at least own it, tell her that's why you're going, and say, you know what, I'm interested in you, I'm not really interested in the church, but I can't tell you how many people that came interested in the girl and have left being followers of Jesus. So God works in all kinds of ways, that's just honest, 
the 915 clapped at that idea. So I, I don't know how, what y'all are thinking, but, um, but you see the difference. Now, there are people, so we served in a church in the 90s that was on TV, and uh, it was before all the things we have access to now. And there would be people that would join the church, make sure they sat where they were in view of the camera, because that's good for business. Now, I don't know if it's so good anymore to be a part of the church. That really helps your business or not. Back then, it did, because I was just being part of the community. That's fake. There's a, there's a difference, in, 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 and only you can answer that question. The other day, we were at uh, several of our staff, uh, five of us, actually, I don't know if that's several or not. It feels like several. So five of us were at a, a, a thing called Movement DFW, and they did a survey uh, of young adults and teenagers, uh, and part of the day was just learning the results of that, but it was a survey in Dallas-Fort Worth. This wasn't some outside-of-here survey. It was in Dallas-Fort Worth, and probably the most startling stat of the day was when they said that what young adults and teenagers said is that their parents are irrelevant in their spiritual growth. That's DFW right here, young 20s and teenagers. They didn't say why. I don't know that I know why. Here's a little speculation. We've talked about biblical worldview and said that one out of ten Christian households actually are living out a biblical worldview. If that's the case, then I understand why teenagers and young 20s would say their parents were not the spiritually relevant ones for them. I think we have a lot of exceptions in the room, but gosh, it's sure worth checking our heart, isn't it, to say, what's going on in my home? Am I just showing up at church and I never talk about Jesus again for the next six days? Am I doing anything to actually nurture the growth and development of my kids spiritually, or am I expecting other people to do that for me? Because what they reported is that they, all, they different ones have heroes, mentors, other adults in their lives. And we absolutely need that. And, and we ought to be the people who are jumping in to be that for other people. But wow, it's a kick in the gut to think that parents are thought of as irrelevant in the spiritual growth of their kids. Good, good heart checks for us when we think about that. Well, just to kind of move through rapidly, verse 7 and 8, there's a clear focus here that comes into play. Jesus says, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Uh, and I love what Jesus does. We've seen him do this again and again. He defends people, and he's defending her. She's, she's put this extravagant kind of love towards him. They're kind of scolding her. They're all on her about it. And then he's saying, no, 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 you leave her alone. And he says something that uh, is a thought. This may or may not be right, but it's a possibility. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The idea there is that she has kept this 
fragrant oil. And this is actually, what this is signifying is his death is coming and she's preparing his body as they would in a death. She's preparing him now for his death. The cost of it was such that in that day, uh, a woman would have a dowry that would be given to the husband in order for the marriage to happen. And some think that this would have been her dowry for her future marriage. And yet her attachment and, attachment and all inness on Jesus was such that she was willing to give up that dowry and a potential future husband for Jesus. At any rate, she for sure was anointing and preparing his body for death. See, sometimes God asks us to do something extravagant and we don't understand the why. We just do it. Sometimes We're asked to do crazy things by God. And we may not know this is the why behind it. But out of love for him, we do it. Now, people do things that are crazy, that are not of God. That's why it's good to be in community that is in there with us, with the Holy Spirit, praying. And then we step into the things God's leading us into. But Jesus brings it into focus. This is the why. And then outside of this, outside of the home where the dinner's going on, uh, it's, uh, there's a large crowd gathering. There's some different responses there. They came not for Jesus' sake only, verse 9, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So oftentimes there are people who are curious about Jesus. They, Lazarus raised from the dead. I mean, that would stir my curiosity, wouldn't it, yours? Uh, and so they were in range, so they come. So there's the curious Verse 10, the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Now here's poor Lazarus. He was dead. God raised him from the dead. He's associated with Jesus, the chief priest. They've seen all this evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. And that's how it often is today. People can see the evidence, but they still just want to get rid of it. That really shows us the power of sin and of Satan to block and to keep us from uh, seeing the good news of Jesus. The Sadducees, who were part of the chief priests, also would have been embarrassed because they did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. And standing right in front of them is Lazarus raised from the dead. So there are people that have the evidence that will not respond to Christ. However, verse 11, on account of him, of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and they were believing in Jesus. There was a lens switch happening. They were following one thing and now they were believing Jesus. And that's what God's inviting us into is to believe what Jesus did on the cross in bearing our sin, becoming the unblemished lamb, the substance that came to take away the sins of the world. And for every person who believes, then we're now called son and daughter and recipients of that extravagant grace now we can extravagantly give back to him sometimes God gives us earthly examples to show what 
all in on him looks like. On Monday morning, about 7 a.m., uh, Lisa looked at a text, and we realized we're not really great parents because we received that text at 4 a.m. in the morning, and our son telling us we're headed to the birthing center, and looks like we'll be having a baby today. We scrambled to get all our stuff together. Yeah, thanks. So we scrambled to get our stuff together. We asked them what they needed, and we started getting ready. And then uh, Beth, my daughter-in-law, her parents, they're doing the same. And we're just really grateful for her parents. They know Jesus, and we just love it for uh, our grandchild that he's got grandparents that love the Lord and parents that love the Lord. And, and so everybody's kind of getting there and scrambling and getting there. We go to this house in Dallas that uh, is a birthing center. This is a whole new deal for us. We, we did the hospital thing years ago. So this, I know many of you have done the birthing center and so forth. So, so we do that. We get there. It was uh, they're under construction a little bit. Like they were kind of getting a little tight whether they were going to be done or not by the time she had the baby. And the baby came a little bit early. Uh, and so we get there, and like there's a plumber there, you know, still working on stuff. It's a house with two birthing suites and then a waiting area outside, uh, outside those rooms. And, and kid you not, she's back there, and then the plumber comes walking out with his tool belt on. And you're thinking he's fixing the tub that she would be in after a while. You're thinking, uh, Jeremy, uh, best dad, said, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, we're just watching this. And then they needed to move some tiles out of the bathroom because they had not finished it yet. So we're helping move tiles out of the bathroom. Um, and, and so it was, it was quite the day. Uh, and then there's two midwives, a doula, a student, uh, two sets of grandparents, a best friend of hers, and then uh, Barrett, our son, and, and we're all out there. And then these days, you bring people in to take a picture. So pictures. So her best friend was in there for three hours taking pictures, uh, which is actually pretty cool because we've seen pictures of multiple things. We get near the end. It's fifteen hours of hard, all natural labor. Uh, so incredible effort on their part, and they were just trained so well. I mean, the way Andrew interacted with her, and then what she did, and the things they knew, the, the training they received was fantastic, um, but certainly 15 hours, that's a long, long haul. The doula comes out and says, or I think it was the doula, said, I think it'll be about five to ten minutes. Well, I'm a competitor, and so I looked at Barrett, and I said, let's guess the time. I know it's a small window, but let's, let's give it a shot. And so I said 541, he said 545, I said perfect. Well, I don't, the way these things work, we're like one wall away from her, uh, and so you're kind of hearing quite a bit of what's going on. Uh, and so we're all standing there anticipating, and I'm looking at my phone at 541, and this is a good use of a phone, and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, man, she is silent in there, this is not good. And then I hear what goes on with a contraction, and I'm thinking, I just kind of mouth it. I said, come on, Beth, push harder. You can do it. <laughs> and I mean, as soon as I said it, that baby cried. And I yes, 541, nailed it. And then it turned 542. I said, it better be on that birth certificate, 541, because I watched it happen right here. And it was. So they must have had their phone in there also. But it's the coolest thing. They had all these different things with the baby, and, um, and, and uh, just it was a real mapped out thing. But in the birthing center, then you just go home. That's not what we did. You hand the baby off, and you get a little break. <laughs> they get the baby, and they head on home. Uh, and this is when I learned grandparenting is such a good deal. We got in the car and went home, too. Uh, you just kind of go home and go to bed. This was a great day uh, with it. But I want to give you a picture. Here's, here he is. This is... 
Yeah. So that's Miles Andrew in his mother's lap. And then here's a fuller shot of him. That's a few hours after his birth. Life is good. Finally saw his eyes this weekend. I was getting concerned, but now I know there's eyes in there, so I'm excited about that. Uh, and then I love this picture of Lisa and Andrew. And I just love the generational shot of a little boy and his dad. And then Gigi is, is Lisa. And then these things cause you to reflect, right? So Lisa was remembering how the doctor told her when she was in labor, if you don't hurry up and push a little harder, this child's going to turn 18 in your womb. So you need to... <laughs> so we need to send that picture to him and say, hey, he got out. So we, we're in good shape. And then this last picture um, are his feet. And I, I wanted to show you that because... With this little boy in just six days, he's got two sets of grandparents, one set of parents. They're all in on him. Every minute. And I, I just love the picture of his feet. And when I think about what we just read today, and my prayer for him, is that he'll be like Mary and that he will love sitting at the feet of Jesus. That when things are hard, that like Mary, he'll bow at the feet of Jesus and know that Jesus is the one that can help. And that he'll so experience the grace and love of Jesus that whatever the most menial task is, that he'll walk in humility and serve him. And that he'll be the feet, as those feet get bigger, that in Isaiah, is how beautiful are the feet of those. And the mountains who bring good news, announcing salvation and peace. And that his feet will carry him from the feet of Jesus to carry the good news of Jesus to others. And that he'll be a flaming arrow in a dark world. May we all have an all-in-on-Jesus attachment and devotion and love and service. And only then can we love others the way God intends them to be loved. Father, thank you uh, for the morning. Grateful for your word and pictures of people like Mary. To just extravagantly give. And Jesus, thank you for doing that on our behalf. Thank you that in your feet you took the nail to bear our sin so that we could be set free. 
to not walk in shame or guilt or condemnation or with any impending and looming penalty of judgment and death away from you, but instead to be set free, to walk in a grace and a mercy and a devotion and a love that will bring the deepest satisfaction in our own hearts and to the hearts of others, that we might be an aroma of life to people in the way we serve, the way we live, the way we share, whatever it is. But I pray we'd have such a devotion to you, God, that we would know out of that intimacy the ways you want us to give extravagantly back to you and to others. Thank you for being patient, taking us where we are, changing our hearts. So we just want to say thank you today and pray in Jesus' name. If we could, if we could just be still for a moment in whatever God's doing in your own heart, I hope you'll receive it uh, and then walk in it and seek whatever help you need from any of us and any help that you need. Uh, It's just like a little baby needs a whole slew of people around them. Uh, So we too need a whole slew of people around us to help us walk in that all-in way with Jesus.